The high stress, productivity oriented modern world is a summer kind of mode. Long days, short nights, lots of stress, lots of stimulation. That's normal. Problem is that we don't honor the fact that there are three other seasons that should ebb and flow annually and also across the course of our lifetime. How much is enough? How much biohacking, optimization, health seeking do you need? If you don't know what to do and the research is unclear, strip it back to the thing that we did for most of human history and that's your best jumping Change your environment before your environment changes you. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I am so thrilled, honored, and grateful to bring you today's episode. Honestly, this episode has really put things in perspective for me and really made me realize how much of a journey I've been on with this podcast and everything, because I feel like it wasn't that long ago. It seems like just the other day I was traveling from LA to Atlanta and listening to two things with my mom. One was the whole 30. I was actually honestly listening to it um, because I was hoping it would passive aggressively convince my mom to try whole 30. That was my first exposure to Dallas Hartwig and his work. And then the other thing that I was listening to on that road trip was the early episodes of Well-Fed Women with Noelle Tarr. Now here we are today. I'm bringing you today's episode with Dallas, which this conversation was just so incredible and I, I learned so much and I'm so grateful for it. And then Noelle, I had her recently on the podcast and we're like great friends now. So I mean, it's just so crazy to see where your life journey can take you and put it out there to the universe. And I think we really do attract, you know, what energy we're putting out there. So I just want to encourage everybody to, you know, follow your passion, follow your dreams. And the world is full of so much good. And let's just keep that flowing few things before we jump in. The show notes for today's episode, they will be at melanieavalon.com slash seasons. You definitely want to check out those show notes because they now have transcripts. I just think it's such an amazing resource to be able to read these episodes as well, especially when they're super long, like this one today. So definitely check that out. I am a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance. You can also join me in my Facebook community. That is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Real Foods plus Intermittent Fasting plus Life. We discuss everything there. So definitely, definitely join me. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm still super shy on Instagram and feel really awkward there, but (laughs) I am trying to post. So feel free to follow me. That's at Melanie Avalon. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I am thrilled to be here today with a man who honestly needs no introduction, but I will introduce him anyway. <laughs> I am here with Dallas Hartwig. He is the New York Times bestselling co-author of something listeners are probably very familiar with, The Whole30, and it starts with food. He's a sought-after speaker, nutritionist, functional medical practitioner, physical therapist. He's been 
everywhere. Good Morning America, The Dr. Oz Show, all the things. He also has a podcast. We were just (laughs) talking about that before we started recording. It is the Living Experiment Podcast. And he's here today because he has a new book out. It is called The Four Season Solution, A Groundbreaking New Plan for Feeling Better, Living Well, and Powering Down Our Always-On Lives. And listeners, I will say, so I got this book. I was really excited from the beginning because the whole season idea. And I thought obviously that it would be a lot about seasonal eating, which is something that I'm very, very much a fan of and was really interested in exploring more. But this book goes way, way beyond that. It is not just about food. It goes into so many aspects of life. It's honestly a truly almost haunting book. There's so many moments reading it where I was just, I mean, I was speechless because I was reading and not talking, but (laughs) I was almost left speechless with the beautiful things that were portrayed in it. And I really felt empowered to make changes in my life, especially in today's modern, crazy, always on society. So Dallas, thank you so much for your book and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That's an incredibly generous introduction. So I'm already feeling the pressure to perform. No, seriously, it was amazing. So I'm just like so excited to dive in deep with you on everything that you discussed in it. To start things off, so it's so funny. I was like prepping for this interview and I was like, I just want to talk about the whole book. And I was like, but I guess we can't, I was like, I guess we can't do that. I guess what reading that's what reading the book is for. You start off the book talking about your personal upbringing and guys, it's fascinating. Cabin upbringing, something I don't even know if I could ever quite do. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your upbringing and also the trajectory of your life beyond that and what ultimately led you to this point of writing this book? You know, you make reference to the cabin upbringing. My parents in the mid 70s, living in Eastern Ontario, Canada, bought a little, what was basically a rundown cabin on 100 acres at the end of a dead end road and decided to live of extremely simple and effectively what we would call off the grid lifestyle where we, well, this was before I was born, but they basically took a cabin that was 80 plus years old and totally broken down, made it habitable. It had no electricity. It had no running water. And a couple of years after they made it habitable, I was born. And for the first five years of my life, that's where we lived. And it was extremely, we were homesteading effectively. And so it was extremely sparse. You know, we had one luxury of a single light bulb wired to a car battery and, you know, I think later we got like one of those propane lanterns, but that was the, the modern luxury. And when you think about it, you know, we heated with wood in the, the long, cold Ontario winters. And we had a very large vegetable garden. We spent a lot of time outside. My mom worked part time in a very small town, which was nearby. And my dad stayed home. And so we were like home and outside and living a very, very simple life for my first five years. And Part of that very simple life was an extraordinary connection to the natural world, both by simple virtue of being outside, but also by virtue of not having electricity. So we didn't, we couldn't just flick a switch and turn the lights on at 10 p.m. because it just wasn't there. So I have always slept really, really well, like for my whole life. And I partially attribute that to like the first five years effectively being a I guess, a a perfect circadian rhythm where I wasn't disrupted by artificial light. When the sun started going down, our behavior changed by virtue of there not being available light. 
And that, of course, looks a lot like what our evolutionary past looks like from a sort of hunter-gatherer paleolithic uh, standpoint, or even just pre-industrial standpoint. And I'm deeply grateful to my parents for for choosing that lifestyle when I was really young. You know, when I was five, my parents decided that we needed to be closer to town. I needed to go to conventional school, et cetera. And we started living a more conventional life, but certainly still spending a lot of time outside and, and deeply connected to natural rhythms, which I've always really honored and felt and valued in terms of time in nature, time spent, whether it is just, you know, camping and hiking or exploring, but being outside and, and, and feel a deep connection to the natural world. Again, I think in part because that's what was sort of ingrained into me, not by intention necessarily by my parents, but just simply like that was what the world was. And so that was what I absorbed in those early formative years. So even later when I went to, you know, more conventional schools and went away to university and became a kind of young adult, even then it was, there's still a, a real strong connection to the natural rhythms of the natural world. So I studied anatomy and physiology in college and finished my master's degree in physical therapy and practiced physical therapy for almost a decade. And all the way along had an interest in nutrition and athletic performance. I played competitive volleyball and so always cared about the athletic performance part of it. What basically happened for me was I was healthy-ish. You know, I didn't have a major health crisis, major breakdown like a lot of people do in this world that got them started on their health journeys. But I did have some lingering issues. I had some kind of chronic, low-grade skin issues, eczema and acne. I had a, more importantly and more problematically for me, I had a shoulder inflammatory, some sort of tendonitis or something that nobody could quite figure out what it was or why it wouldn't go away. And as a physical therapist, I was supposed to be the expert on healing that stuff, and I couldn't heal myself. And around 2006, I stumbled across some early research by Lauren Cordain looking at some of the connections between dietary lectins and systemic inflammation and kind of a light bulb went on for me and said like, oh, hey, maybe there's a connection between my current diet, which at the time was conventionally healthy, you know, whole grains and low fat dairy and kind of all that standard stuff. And I started doing some experimentation and started eliminating some of the things that seemed to be potentially problematic, at least in populations that had autoimmune kind of proclivities. And six weeks later, my shoulder was completely healed. Like, and it's not been a problem in the decade plus since then. So that really got my attention. And that really started my both profound personal interest in nutrition and later other aspects of evolutionary health, and also my kind of professional trajectory into writing and speaking about food. I love it so much. There's so much there. Something I was thinking about was, so you were at the cabin until age five. And I've read before that until age six is when, at least from like the brain perspective, a lot of our brain is developing and, and forming and our habits and our intuitions and personalities even really solidify by age five. And I've always seen it you know, in the context of the brain specifically, but it does make me wonder because you were talking about everything coming from the perspective, like, you know, your sleep and like the physical implications and the seasonal living. I wonder if that is also something that gets sort of crystallized when we're young. I'm just throwing this out there. I have no idea. I don't know, but that sounds really plausible to me because really in those early years and, and particularly in the kind of pre-verbal years, all of those kind of implicit memories, there are 
ideas and concepts about the world that we carry with us for the rest of our lives that are encoded in those early years that are not even really accessible to our conscious minds and to kind of our ability to describe them verbally. And so we have feelings and senses and we have the sort of the gist of things without clear language to explain it. And I think that's probably what goes on from a developmental standpoint there as well, that what we experience is what we expect later in those early years, you know, if we're experiencing and think about it from a sort of a, let's say from a trauma standpoint, if we experience disturbance and attachment with our primary caregivers and chronic stress and uh, circadian rhythm disruption and malnutrition, those experiences are encoded into our, literally into our structure, you know, from a sort of epigenetic standpoint and from a neurophysiological standpoint. So later in life, we continue to expect more of those same situations, even if the context has radically changed. So I think I would conceptually agree with you, even though I don't have research to confirm that. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It's really got me thinking. Do you mind if I ask, were you born in like a conventional hospital or did your parents go like a completely natural birth route as well? I was born in a conventional hospital. My parents were an interesting mix. They didn't necessarily have a deliberate like back to the earth, off the grid, natural concept. They were really deeply pragmatic and very frugal and very like, let's be a bit countercultural because the world around us isn't really that awesome. But it wasn't, they weren't fully integrated into that. So I was born in a conventional hospital with a vaginal birth and I was breastfed and, you know, some of those kind of things that again are either, you know, from a sort of conventional hospital standpoint, not so awesome, but at least I had a vaginal birth and at least I, you know, was breastfed because if you take you know, babies that are born by C-section and, you know, have some sort of, you know, traumatic birth experience and then are either exclusively formula fed or not, you know, or only breastfed for a few months. It's a pretty significant influence on the trajectory of your life just from those, you know, few moments or hours early in your life. So it's a, it's a crazy thing to think about what seems like small decisions, but over the course of long distances of time, that trajectory can get really altered by some of those small things. Yeah, you literally took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say that, at least with the birth perspective, you know, they do the studies on babies that are not are taken away from their mothers and have to be in ICU or something like that. And the implications of that from their social connections later in life, it's really, really fascinating. So, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff, you know, that I'm a kind of a pathologically curious person and little idiosyncratic things always kind of catch my attention. I read a paper a while ago that was looking at the emotional development of school age children, and they were looking at earlier life factors that influence emotional development and for little boys in any way, and this, for whatever reason, the study happened to be just in boys, but for little boys, the use of a pacifier of a, of a binky beyond about four, five, six months seem to significantly impair emotional development at age six. And the hypothesis was when you have a, a soother, when you have a pacifier in your mouth, you're doing less experimentation with your own facial expressions. So you're getting less of the mirroring back of caregivers of facial expressions, which is one of the ways we learn about emotions and kind of that sort of relational model And if we impair that early on, it does change the trajectory of development later. And I'm like, 
that kind of stuff fascinates me. It also is as a parent, it also makes me terribly guilty and overwhelmed with all the things that I've done that in retrospect, I'm like, Oh, what was I doing? But you know, here we are. Life goes on. That's crazy. That was like a twist ending. I thought you were going to say because the baby's trying to comfort themselves that they're not receiving comfort, but the mirroring of the facial expressions. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. So, well, we just talked about, you know, the idea of these patterns and such being ingrained in our bodies and our cells. And so in the four seasons, sorry, in the four seasons solution, I like the four seasons too. It's a great place to stay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an awesome hotel. <laughs> I was actually wondering, was that at all a part of, in you choosing the title? I was wondering that. You know, it wasn't, it's kind of comical. My, my agent says that the title discussions between me and the agent and the publisher and my editor, like was the most protracted and excruciating title discussion like she's ever been through. We had dozens and dozens of title discussions. And finally, we landed on this as a kind of a nice, kind of, I think pretty kind of descriptive synopsis. But no, we didn't, we didn't deliberately make a reference to the Four Seasons, but it works. It works for sure. So in the Four Seasons Solution, there is this idea of natural, cyclical, and seasonal variations in life. And I think people, you know, often will think of these, like think of the seasons, the weather. And I think people are pretty familiar with the idea of like seasonal eating, and we can go into that in more detail. But something you start the book off with is this idea that that is actually these seasonal variations and this need for oscillation is something that is ingrained in our bodies on even a cellular level. So would you like to talk a little bit about that? Why is there this need for oscillation and constant change? And where is that in our actual bodies? Yeah, so that's actually in our genes, literally in our genes. And most organisms from single-celled organisms all the way up to complex mammals have genes that drive the circadian rhythm that influence most metabolic processes um, in the body. And from a sort of just simple biological standpoint, that's easily explained by the fact that most organisms, again, kind of accepting some of the ones that live in the extremely deep ocean where there isn't a day-night cycle, but most organisms spend their entire life in that dark light 24-hour circadian rhythm. And so the way we behave, again, this is like sort of on an on a every organism level, is partially dictated by the availability or absence of light. You know, whether we are nocturnal or not, that rhythm still drives behavior, everything from eating, sleeping, you know, sex and reproduction, metabolic activity, alertness, cognitive function, emotional reactivity, all of these things are all influenced by that circadian rhythm. So in humans, that gets transmitted primarily through the eyes. And so the retina gets connected to the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the hypothalamus. And that light signal is what gives our brains, it's the, it's the primary way, not the only way, but it's the primary way that we get information about what's going on in the environment. So the presence of bright light and particularly the blue wavelengths tell us it's daytime. We should be alert. We should be mentally sharp. We should be kind of on guard and vigilant. And that makes total sense because during the daytime, it's when we are both doing our kind of, again, I'll use the hunter-gatherer kind of ancestral perspective. It's when we do all of our hunting and gathering. It's when we're vo most vulnerable to predators or any kind of, you know, warring tribes that are nearby. So light is a signal for alertness. 
And the absence of light is the opportunity for rest and restoration. And that's a really important idea because with the advent of artificial light, we totally disrupt that system because we send inconsistent messages at variable times of day that give our bodies, again, through the retina, messages about whether we should be alert and on guard or whether we can kind of downcycle and rest. And I'll argue that, and I do argue in the book that the advent of artificial light is one of the most significant disruptions in human physiology and the history of humans. I think the implications are profound. And like you mentioned in the book, you were saying that, you know, with your original book, like it starts with food, you know, there's the emphasis on food and diet, but you drew attention to it starts that part of the title because there's actually so much more beyond diet and you drew attention to, you know, like you just said, the actual profound implications of sleep and light and how that affects so many things. So would you subscribe almost pointless because we obviously want to optimize both of them, but when it comes to like different lifestyle changes, you know, diet versus sleep, how do you rank those? I don't know. (laughs) I used to say easily, and again, it starts with food is a great example. I used to easily say food is the single most impactful lifestyle choice. I'm not sure if I would still stand by that statement. I'm not sure I've completely inverted it in saying, you know, circadian rhythm, light, dark cycle, sleep cycles is the single largest thing, but I appreciate its impact a lot more than I did five or 10 years ago. And a lot of this is we have a lot better, deeper, more detailed research on circadian rhythms, on clock genes, on, you know, metabolic effects at different times of day. We know a lot more about the effect of light on our sleep. I mean, like we just have more research now than we did 10 years ago. And I certainly would say that properly calibrating our light dark cycle, which is a little larger of a topic, a little larger of a discussion than just sleep, hours slept, time slept. I think exposure to light and dark is really the larger umbrella there and sleep kind of nests underneath that. But that's a much larger driver of human health than I previously appreciated. And I think that's probably true for a lot of researchers as well. So maybe I'll say they're tied. I don't know. It's tough to say, you know, one specific thing, but it's a much higher priority than I than I previously recognized. It's almost a pointless, you know, comparison to make, but I think it does do the benefit of emphasizing the importance of sleep at least and if you saw <laughs> if you saw my all of the stuff that I go to to try to optimize my sleep in our modern world, you know, when you wake up, the intentional bright blue light exposure of course. Although now I'm on the fence with that. I'm like, should I even be doing that? Because, you know, with so much blue light exposure all the time, do you do that? Do you have like the bright light in the morning? I do have bright light in the morning, but it's invariably natural light. Because the thing that's really interesting, and I I write about this in the book as well, is that unless you have, you know, a light box that's kind of 10,000 lux or brighter, which which feels extremely bright in the morning in particular, most artificial light sources fall way, way below the threshold for kind of qualifying as quote unquote bright light for that early morning. And so while you know, a light box that's a very cool temperature that has lots of blue light in it can definitely function as a stand-in, either if you're getting up really early or if you have, 
you know, shift work where you have an altered circadian rhythm, or if it's just super gray where you live and there's just not, not much sun. But even if it's overcast outside, there's a ton more light, like factors of 10 more light outside on an overcast day than you would get inside, even at somewhere brightly lit, like a department store or a grocery store. So I don't do any of the deliberate artificial blue light first thing in the morning because fortunately where I live, I've got a bunch of windows that are east and south facing and I can sit at my dining room table and basically look at the sunrise. And that's a, a beautiful thing. It When it's warmer outside, I'll just go outside and, you know, go outside and the deck and be outside. So I do put a much higher priority on natural light exposure. But to your point, the blue light is a great stand-in when you don't have that option. That's fantastic. And actually, I moved within the past year. And one of my non-negotiables was I was like, it has to have tons of windows and light exposure. I was like, non-negotiable, <laughs> non-negotiable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I built a house where I live now a couple of years ago. And just by virtue of kind of how it's located, end up putting a huge bank of windows, both on the east side and on the south side, that kind of intersect to the corner. And at the time, I wasn't thinking as much about the morning light exposure, but I'm so glad that I put such a big bank of windows on the east side because it makes morning light wonderful. So yeah, that has become a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. So important, like moving forward. Although I do have a quick question because you said at the very beginning that you didn't struggle with, you know, insomnia and things like that. Has that continued to this day? You're, you still sleep pretty well? I do sleep pretty well. I haven't really had kind of any chronic insomnia. What I've had the past two, two or three or four years, and this is just highly correlated with sort of stress in my life, as I occasionally, you know, a couple of mornings a week will wake up super early at four or five and kind of have that early cortisol pulse and then have a hard time going back to sleep. But I think that's less a function of a circadian rhythm disruption from a light standpoint and more a function of sort of stress and anxiety and kind of some of that mental health stuff more than a, a light issue. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. We can definitely tackle all of that as well. <laughs> so many things are interrelated. It's so many things. I know. So I'm very jealous of you right now with your, with, your, with that, but not of the cortisol awakening, but <laughs> the generally good sleeping. Because for me, like my system at night, I transition through three different blue light blocking glasses. Like I start with the clear ones, then I transition to the yellow, then to the red. I do the, the chili pad to like keep the sleep temperature correct. I do the EMF blocking canopy. <laughs> um, I do like the night call. The night lights are all red. I do the juve red light. Yeah, there's the system. Are you doing juve morning and night or just at night? I do morning and night. I actually turn it on during the day as well. And I don't know, it just has a profound effect on my mood. Nice. I just got one just about a month ago. So I'm still kind of tinkering with that. So I actually haven't really kind of concluded what its effect is on me yet. Oh, awesome. Do you have one of the bigger units? I've got one of the, yeah, I forget. Is it called the solo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's kind of the long skinny one. Yeah. Do you have any like muscle recovery issues or anything like that? Yeah. So I do a lot of rock climbing, a lot of connective tissue stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm working on that. So yeah, that's kind of my primary driver there. Oh yeah. You have to let me know. It's profound in my opinion. And there's been a lot of clinical literature on it as well. So yeah. I will say one more thing about the sleep while we're talking about it. Something that was fascinating in your book was you did compare our sleep patterns today to hunter gatherers. And something I found really fascinating was you noted that actually we don't sleep less now than hunter-gatherers, but there's this idea that we probably need more sleep now or our sleep isn't as restful. 
So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like how does our sleep compare to hunter-gatherers? There was an early hypothesis, you know, kind of in the ancestral health world saying that, oh, you know, with the advent of artificial light and staying up well after dark because of the light, that modern humans slept less than sort of our, our ancient ancestors. And that was part of the reason why we had all these chronic health problems. The research doesn't seem to bear that out when we look at contemporary primitive tribes. And I think, you know, and I discussed this in the book, some of the researchers are like, oh, cool, like nothing to worry about. We sleep the same as these primitive tribes. You know, the sleep deficit that we used to think is actually not an issue. Don't have to worry about it. I interpret that research a little bit differently. And my take on it is we may spend a similar number of hours actually asleep, you know, compared to some of the the primitive tribes, which were a rough approximation of our ancestors. But the difference is that we spend far, far fewer hours in darkness. And so I make the distinction in the book between time spent in darkness and time spent asleep, because it's a radically different thing from a hormonal standpoint. And all of your listeners will know that you know, blue light in particular, but bright light in general will block the secretion of melatonin. And melatonin usually starts to rise a couple hours before our normal, you know, kind of our habituated sleep time. And if we have the presence of light, in particular, the blue light, if we're not doing blue blockers or we're on our, you know, we're on our screens or whatever, it delays that melatonin pulse. And so, that's something that would be a really significant difference. And sometimes by, you know, off by a couple hours, which is a pretty significant difference in terms of the actual circadian rhythm. And so the time spent in darkness is really the thing that I hone in on, you know, in the book. And that's a really big difference from the primitive or ancestral world to the modern world. Because in the modern world, we're trucking along, doing our thing, cooking dinner, winding down, doing whatever we're doing. And then we turn up the lights and expect to, you know, immediately fall into a deep, restful sleep. And of course, for many of us, that doesn't happen, even if we are doing mitigating things like blue blocking glasses and all that stuff. So I interpret that research really as, oh, what we actually have is a deficiency of darkness, not necessarily a deficiency of time spent asleep. The other part of that, and I didn't discuss it in detail in the book, but I'll comment on it here. The other part of it is not all sleep is the same sleep, right? So that we have different sleep architecture at different times of night. And so hours slept, while it's an easy way to kind of count it up for research purposes, is not a complete picture of how deeply restored we are when we awake in the morning. And I'll go one step further. When we're comparing, of course, one of the primary functions of sleep, although there's many, but it's it's restoration time. It's rest. It's recovery. I mean, it's the downtime. And it's not the like passive, oh, just the lights are off and we're just kind of being inert. We're doing detoxification and we're doing all these recovery processes during sleep. And in the modern world with our stressors of all sorts, whether it's, you know, environmental toxins or light pollution or financial stress or whatever the requirement for that restoration, that recovery time, logically, is greater than when we're living in a lower stress, more natural environment. So there is also a bit of an apples to oranges comparison between primitive and ancestral sleep patterns and the modern sleep patterns, because even if we were getting the same amount of deep restorative sleep on the same number of REM cycles and all of that as our ancestors, the requirement for sleep is conceptually higher in the modern world because of all of our chronic stressors. So there's still some weakness in the science in comparing those two things. So it's complex. 
And there's no simple, like you need X number of hours of sleep or X number of hours of darkness. And so for me, I'm a big fan of, of simple heuristics. And one of the heuristics in the book is is essentially, look, if you don't know what to do and the research is unclear, and this is true of food and everything else, if you're not really sure, strip it back to the thing that we did for most of human history. And that's your best jumping off point, right? It's an Occam's razor kind of thing. And it's the same conceptual reason why I, broadly speaking, subscribe to a paleo type diet, because with all of the different nutritional factors and personal differences and genetic things and athletic performance things and all this stuff, all of that aside, the best jumping off point is what we did for most of our evolutionary history. So that's true for both sleep and for food and everything else. Yeah. And speaking to that, hi friends, do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code MelanieAvalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, 
two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. It's so interesting to think about with the hunter-gatherer populations and the sleep because you're you know, speaking to how we might have more of a need for sleep due to our greater stress that we experience today. And I find there's so much irony there because it's like on the one hand, we are seen as, you know, a more sedentary population. So you would anticipate, you know, less energy expenditure, but ironically, the way we're engaging with life seems to be massively draining and creates even, you know, more of this need for rest and restoration. And that's the kind of the thing with something like exercise or, or just movement in general is that there's a sweet spot, right? Because we know that in a lot of cases, moderate or intense exercise is actually really good for people's circadian rhythms in their sleep. And so there's this kind of this situation of being sedentary has its own sort of inflammatory kind of downstream consequences. And also on the other extreme, the overtrained, under-recovered athlete is also, ironically enough, in a deeply inflammatory state. And so... When we think about, I mean, even, and if we kind of zoom way out and just skip over the biochemical details, stress and inflammation are really tightly intertwined, like really tightly intertwined, because not all inflammation, of course, is problematic and pathological. So inflammation is just a a mobilization of the immune system, which is necessary and beneficial for of course, fighting off, you know, you know, external infections and those sorts of things. But it's also how we recover from everyday life, which is one of the things, you know, we need to do a lot of during sleep. So the connection between stress and inflammation is is really, really tight. And which is why any of the chronic stressors, and I mean, the list is a mile long, any of the chronic stressors that contribute to inflammation, which is virtually all of them, virtually all contribute to chronic disease. So there's like such a tight correlation there that really the principle underlying virtually all of my recommendations is balance out the stress and recovery equation, which is really balancing out the inflammation recovery kind of equation. We want to have the ability to mobilize our immune system to recover from all the different assaults we have, and then be fully rested and recovered in a resilient state, you know, the next day or the next year or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it seems to always go back to this. I mean, it's, it is an oscillation, rest and recovery, you know, expending this energy in a healthy way, recovering compared to just constant drain, 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 on, on, on with no recovery, which is the big, big problem. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the story of civilization, right? Is, is kind of perpetual expansion and, you know, from both a biological standpoint and also sort of a little more of a sort of philosophical standpoint in the pre-agricultural world, there was a beautiful, elegant and self-perpetuating balance between expansion and contraction because that happened on every conceivable timeline. And in every it's, it's basically, it's a fractal pattern where we have it in our, you know, in our sleep cycles, in our ultradian rhythms, in our circadian rhythms, in our lunar cycles, in our annual cycles, and across the course of our lifetimes. And I didn't discuss this in the book, but also sort of conceptually beyond the course of our lifetimes into kind of a species level expansion contraction cycle. And I'll argue that the advent of agriculture and civilization 
accelerated humans into this enormous overexpansive, you know, kind of, you know, long cycle as a species. And, you know, whether we're talking about probably step on some toes here, but whether we're talking about economic growth as sort of a perpetually expansive model, or whether we're talking about the sort of biological pieces, imbalances between expansion and contraction are deeply corrosive to the health of whatever system you're looking at, whether it's a single cell organism or whether it's a human or whether it's a civilization. And Michael Pollan just wrote a book on caffeine, which I've not yet listened to. It's an audio book, but I know one of the things he talks about in there is the difference between caffeine being kind of beneficial for humans as an organism, the human organism from a biological standpoint versus the sort of civilizational component of it. And he makes a distinction between caffeine being a boon for civilization, but not necessarily a boon for the organisms themselves. And I think that's a fascinating idea that I kind of lean into a little bit in the book is making a distinction between what is quote-unquote good for civilization, which is, of course, expansion, uh, you know, and kind of productivity and success and, you know, stockpiling resources and ownership and all this kind of stuff that is not necessarily for the good for the health of the individual organisms or the tribes themselves. And I think that distinction is a really important and under-addressed one. I am so happy that, that you you brought up the caffeine thing. That was actually something I was musing over was the implications and the role of caffeine specifically in one's individual oscillation throughout the day. Because I was thinking on the one hand, something like caffeine or really any other compound that would create this effect, but caffeine is the perfect example. You could use it constantly to stay constantly on and never have that off moment. But then on the flip side, you know, people will say, okay, we'll just cut out caffeine. We shouldn't have caffeine. But then I think, well, maybe there is a role for caffeine. And I'm dying to, I'm going to have to read this book by Michael Pollan because I'm dying to know what it says. Yeah, me too. Because I was thinking having, you know, caffeine in the morning when it's in line with your natural, you know, alert state, people say cut out caffeine for insomnia, but maybe something like that can actually decrease insomnia because it's making you more energetic, you know, in the morning and then not having it at night. So it does make me wonder, especially since I'm all into the whole biohacking thing, I'm always like wondering, like, to what extent should I be trying to live this quote, natural life without this, this biohacking? And with things like biohacking, is it making life, you know, better? Is it still in line with our natural rhythms and the way things should be? I think it's a very complicated topic because, yeah. In a way, I was wondering, like, do you think biohacking is somehow in conflict in a way with the way our natural bodies should be? Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. The short answer is I don't think it's in conflict with our kind of natural rhythms and our kind of our intrinsic kind of physiology. What I see, and, and this is not any statement about you, personally, what I see in the biohacking community, and I'm less tapped into that in recent years than I have been previously, but what I've seen in the biohacking community is the very natural, very human desire to get something for nothing. The desire to take a shortcut, the desire to do it the quote unquote easier way. And because ultimately what we're doing with biohacking, if you and I define it similarly, is we are looking to leverage insights about how the human organism works 
to optimize different aspects of our human experience, whether that is cognitive performance or athletic performance or whatever. And I think there is a opportunity to apply those scientific insights and fascinating ideas and quirky, cool little gadgets that really can be profoundly beneficial. But I think what often happens is that we will apply some of those strategies or tools or supplements or whatever, hoping to bypass the much more significant, meaty, and sometimes difficult and arduous process of changing the way that we live in order to actually extricate ourselves either in small port or potentially in large part from the really, really unnatural world that most of us live in. And so I think there's no moral judgment there whatsoever. And there's not really even, I'm not even saying that biohacking is not something that you should do. I think what I'm saying is really work hard to recognize that the, not only the sort of Occam's razor simplest way to address many of the issues we try to resolve with biohacking, but probably still the most effective way to optimize is actually to return closer and closer and closer and closer to what our genes, to what our physiology expects. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to live as a hunter-gatherer. You know, it doesn't mean you have to abandon all modern technology, et cetera. But it does mean you probably have to make some uncomfortable changes in your life. Because I don't think, for the most part, a lot of the biohacking strategies and tools in general, even if you're doing, you know, using extensive, well-researched strategies, in general, they don't seem to be strong enough over the course of time to overshadow the downsides, the cost of living in a really messed up modern world. So as a compensatory strategy for things you can't control, absolutely wonderful. But I don't always see people using it that way. I'll often see people, you know, trying to, you know, for example, you're trying to work their high stress jobs with a disrupted circadian rhythm and intense psychological pressure to perform while using, you know, a, a supplement to optimize their cognitive performance or whatever. And I'm like, hey, listen, like you can do that stuff to offset some of the costs, but it's still going to fall below the threshold of what actually normalizing your physiological and psychological health is going to, you know, the, the benefits of doing that. So I don't know, I kind of rambled there, but um, it's a difficult thing. And, you know, just to your point, like, I use the red and, and, and near infrared tools too. I play around with, you know, morning light exposure and blue blockers. And like, I do all that stuff, but I don't take it very seriously. It's sort of one of those things where I think about it as just icing on the cake. And I think we sometimes forget that the real important part is the cake itself. No, I think this is such an important conversation to have. And honestly, I'm shocked I haven't had it <laughs> yet having a biohacking podcast. I think a lot of people are drawn exactly like you said to the biohacking concept. Like you said, they want to get something for nothing, you know, maximize everything with minimum investment, or they want to live this perpetually on lifestyle and they need these quote biohacks to sustain that artificially, arguably. I personally come to biohacking more in line with what you were saying, like on the food side of things, honestly, I am like looking forward to the day that I never feel the need to take a quote biohacking supplement because I really just think I just want to be able to eat food, like real food and not think about, do I need some methylated blah, blah? Do I need some, <laughs> uh, you know, NMN, although I will say NMN has been helping my NAD levels. So that's something I think 
I will be happy to exit gracefully the biohacking food world <laughs> when I have gut issues. That's why I tend to dwell there a bit. So let me ask you a question. Then. Are you doing that primarily sort of sort of from a, a therapeutic restorative healing standpoint? Is that your, your primary focus at this point? Yes. Like the primary focus is like give the body the support it needs that it might not be able to due to the state that it's in, receive adequately. It's funny. (laughs) Okay. You said in your book, how long would it take to heal? I think, I don't know if you're talking about like diet or lifestyle or what it was, but you were like, if you just drop somebody on an Island, it would happen. And I was like, yeah, I wish somebody could pick me up and actually just drop me on an Island. I actually think it could be like radical. Like, <laughs> and I think that's, that's the underlying principle here, right? Is they, the truly optimal and we, you know, in biohacking, we use the word optimize a ton, but the truly optimal situation is, is, is a situation that most closely matches what our physiology expects. And, you know, when we think even about sort of the concept of evolution, evolution is the perpetual fine tuning of our current physiology to match our environment, which of course is constantly changing. So the closer we get to match environment and in, in, in what the physiology expects, the healthier we're going to be. So could you get dropped on an island and everything would sort of sort itself out in a matter of months or years? Yeah, I think so. And because virtually all of us have, you know, psychological and physiological costs to the way we have lived in years and decades past, and perhaps are still living, I think there's a perfect role and and place for leveraging all of the modern technologies and research that we have, including lots of biohacking tools to help us dig ourselves out of the very deep hole that we've dug. And then I think there's a, a natural transition, which I hear you kind of looking forward to, but there's a natural transition where you don't have to continue living that way because as far as I'm concerned, and this is something that I don't say explicitly in the book, but I've said in many conversations, it's like, you know, I've been doing this nutrition, health, wellness, education now for over a decade. And that's not counting my years in clinical physical therapy. And I'm getting really bored of talking about health as an endpoint. Because if you think about it from a sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs standpoint, all of the things that we address physiologically with biohacks and with nutritional strategies and with sleep strategies and with exercise, all we're really doing is addressing the very rudimentary base of that pyramid, the, you know, the most simple hierarchy of needs and the really interesting human experiences and the things that set humans apart from simpler and or non-conscious other you know, other, other creatures, other animals is all of the interesting stuff that happens towards the top of that pyramid where we're getting into complex community relationships and thinking about legacy beyond our lifetime and contribution to something greater than ourselves and, and self-actualization and transcendence of self. Right. And so that's the interesting stuff. So to me, health is only interesting to the point that it unlocks the opportunities for those more interesting experiences. And so I'm at this place, I'm like, cool, like I've done 10 years of this speaking and writing thing on health and wellness. And really what I want to say is like, use the insights that I and a bajillion other people have kind of written and spoken about to the point where you can exit, to use your word, to exit the paradigm where we're constantly focused on self and we're constantly focused on fine-tuning and optimizing and success and performance and actually look outward into 
our relationships, our personal, you know, romantic relationships, our family relationships, our community and kind of tribe relationships, because that's where the really fun, interesting stuff happens. And in the book, I write about sort of the seasons of our lives kind of concept. And I think there's a, an interesting parallel between the annual seasons and the sort of the phases of our, of, that happen during the course of our lifetime and the, you know, kind of high stress, productivity-oriented, kind of high-pressure modern world is effectively a, a summer kind of mode, right? It is long days, short nights, lots of stress, lots of stimulation, perpetual expansion. It's kind of on the go all the time. And that's normal, both in the summertime, literally, and also normal in the summertime of our lives. The problem is that we don't honor the fact that there are three other seasons that should come and go and ebb and flow annually and also across the course of our lifetime. And I'm 41. I'm looking forward into my next couple decades and saying, what do I want to do here? Where do I want to go with this life? And it's not, you know, more books, more bestsellers, more programs, bigger speaking engagements. It's not necessarily more of the summer kind of productivity and success experiences, I'm anticipating in the coming years, pivoting slowly over the course of time to start thinking more about a kind of fall kind of ethos, which is more along the like Thanksgiving lines of presence and gratitude and generosity and connection and community and leadership and contribution to something outside of and greater than yourself. And that's the interesting stuff. But we don't give ourselves the opportunity to get into that phase in our lives, often until we're retired or maybe never, depending on how we live our lives. But I think that there's a really tragic lost opportunity to experience some of those very deep, intuitive, emotional experiences much earlier in our lives than we than we do. And one of the things I really am advocating strongly for these days, including in the book, is honoring the shift from a, you know, perpetual expansion on the go success, productivity, summer kind of, you know, efficiency kind of mode and saying, let's pivot and slow down and let's get into the space of honoring other ways of being besides that chronic high stress. So I totally commandeered that part of the conversation. <laughs> no, no. There's like so many things you touched on. I was like, oh, this is amazing. One of the things that resonated with me so much was, you know, the idea you were talking about it not being all about health. And I'm paraphrasing, but there's this one quote that has stuck with me for so long. And it's something to the effect of when you have your health, you want you know, you want the world or you want all these things, but when you don't have your health, all you want is your health. And I, I feel like that's the thing. It's like health in a way, I don't think that should be the, like you said, the end all be all I'm healthy. It shouldn't be like this moral achievement that that's what we're striving for. I think we should strive to reach these bodies that because they're healthy are able to be vehicles for us to pursue our passions and dreams in the world. And the things that bring us meaning. And I just think that's so, so important. Well, and there's a great tragedy there, right? Because we often come to, you know, seeking health through diet or lifestyle or, or biohacking or whatever, because we, we looking to repair and, and kind of reclaim our health, but there isn't a necessarily a simple either metric or deep sort of intuition that would prompt us to say, oh, well, I'm actually fundamentally healthy now. 
let me reorient the way I'm living to look outward and to stop focusing on the kind of the, the very inward facing, what was, I think, a really appropriate strategy when you need kind of therapeutic, kind of a restorative approach. But at some point, that inward facing optimization piece starts to become pretty, I guess, narcissistic, very, very self-serving and and self-centered because we forget that actually what makes humans deeply gratified, and this is kind of pulling from some of the Blue Zones research on longevity and on happiness, what we know is that what makes people like live good lives, like good with a capital G, is the sensation at the end of your life that they have contributed to something that transcends their actual life. And perpetual optimization of one's health probably doesn't fit into that category. So there isn't a nice, neat and tidy transition where there's sort of a, you know, a flag that goes up and says, okay, cool, like you've optimized things enough, you've healed enough, now go do something else. And I think that's one of the things I want to kind of cue people to introspect on is how much is enough? How much biohacking, optimization, health seeking do you need until you can sort of take your foot off the gas a little bit in that realm? And I think there's an unfortunate and unholy marriage of sort of the health and wellness industry and what's a deeply economically driven paradigm where we're trying to sell people on the idea that they need to buy the newest book and the newest supplement and the newest gadget and there's new research on this new dietary thing. And really, I think the kindest thing to say to people is find your way to health such that your everyday life is not detracted from. And then over the course of time, start to redirect your gaze to something that is out there in the world, kind of pick your head up and look out there instead of doing so much of the inward looking, inward facing, self-serving stuff, because that's a perfectly appropriate and important strategy to heal yourself when you're broken. But that's not a thing that is contributive to a larger whole, if you will, a community, a tribe, a legacy, if you continue that lifelong. I recognize that I run the risk here of being very strident and judgmental and moralizing and all that. And I, I certainly don't intend that. But I do want to really encourage people to say, to ask themselves, and there, there is no correct answer, but ask themselves, how much is enough? And whether that is how much is enough, how much money have I accumulated? How big is my retirement account? Or how much is enough with health optimization and performance? Because performance, whether you're talking about, you know, something very quantifiable like athletic performance, or whether you're talking about sort of performance and success more broadly, that's still conceptually speaking, confined to a summer kind of mode. And one of the things that I really strongly direct people towards in the book is self-assessing and saying, are the things that I feel called to do in my life now, do they deeply match up with what my yearn for? And I think a lot of times, a lot of our coping mechanisms and certainly addictions are anesthetics for the pain of having the mismatch between what we yearn for and what we're actually doing on an everyday basis. And the solution is not more coping strategies. The solution is getting a closer match between what we yearn for and what we're doing. And that requires painful introspection and sometimes really radical shifts on the way that we live. But that's what being a human is. 
is perpetually shifting and changing and updating. And that's what I've done a, a ton of over the past few years and probably need to do about another 10 lifetimes of, but I don't have the opportunity for that. So speaking to what you just said, I feel like, I mean, I'm just thinking about this out loud right now. I feel like there are two almost types of situations that people often find themselves in where it is a matter of like, on the one hand, you have people stuck in, for example, chronic illness situations. And because the focus is on the illness, it just, you know, perpetuates itself. And so it's like, there's not any room for moving beyond that because it gets tied into one's identity in a way. And then there on the flip side, there are people who are seem to be, you know, performing and constantly going and doing all the things, but that's being sustained by an artificial foundation of, you know, caffeine and light and all these stimulating things that aren't, they aren't actually creating support and they're ultimately, you know, wearing you down. And you talk about this idea. It was so funny. I read like the first part of your book and where you started talking about the seasons and listeners, you've got to get this book. It's just fascinating how the seasons align, you know, what they look like with movement, what they look like with food, what they look like with all these things. And I read that and it was before you used this phrase and I was like, oh my goodness, it's like we're living an endless summer. And then you're like, <laughs> and then you were like, we're living an endless summer. And I mean, it's a really fascinating concept. I did have a question about that. And this actually ties into the whole biohacking thing and everything. It's in complete conflict to the idea that we need oscillation and everything, but could a summer lifestyle, quote, summer lifestyle and that energy expenditure be sustained indefinitely if one were to engage in summer lifestyle diet practices which sustained it? Or is that always, is that like a pipe dream in a way? Yeah, it's a, it's a super good question. I think it's a, in short, and I'll tell you why, I think it's a pipe dream. And let's take this the 24-hour rhythm as an example. So what we're doing with optimization or biohacking is we're trying to wring out every little bit of experience, of productivity. Because the reason we have stress hormones when we are alert and active and kind of doing the thing, whether that is, you know, intense work or, it's, you know, raising children or whatever it is, stress hormones improve our performance. That's why we have them, right? And that's normal. And that's a good thing because it's adaptive and it helps us to match up what we need to do with what is asked of us. The problem is that what happens during those stressful times, during those challenging times, is we accrue costs. We accrue structural damage. We accrue inflammatory byproducts. We accrue toxins. And there has to be, and I don't, I think this is a pretty safe statement, that there has to be a period of recovery from that, from that situation where we actually completely reset and restore the inflammatory and structural and metabolic and neurochemical costs of that stress. And so I think you touched on something really interesting, which was sort of the coordination of all of these different factors. And in the book, I talk about four factors. I talk about food. I talk about movement, which includes, but is not limited to structured, planned, formal exercise. I talk about sleep, but just because it's a shorthand, really what I'm talking about is the light, dark cycle and sleep. And then I talk about connection and connection there includes four subsets, connection to self into, in terms of self-awareness, self-compassion, self-love, self-acceptance, and just simple knowledge of self. And I talk about connection to place, 
where we're from, where our roots are, what our sort of kind of, and this gets a little bit kind of soft and woo-woo sometimes, but like just the connection to Mother Earth, the the sensation that we are a part of the superorganism of Earth, connection to others, and that's where we talk about all the social connections of all sorts, and then connection to a sense of purpose, to something greater than ourselves. All of that to say, we coordinate, there's different behaviors under each of those factors for each season, both literal season and kind of longer season of our life. So if we matched up the seasonal behaviors for summer and we did all of those things in the summer mode during the literal and figurative summer times, we would have the optimal summer experience. But part of the optimal human experience more, more largely requires the other aspects, the other three seasons, because they all have different functions. And if you think about it from a sort of circadian rhythm and hormonal standpoint, and I break down times of day, literal seasons and figurative seasons into kind of um, hormonal and neurotransmitter kind of headings or sort of symbolic markers. And so morning and springtime and youth all go with dopamine. And dopamine is associated with excitement and anticipation and novelty and motivation and the movement towards things. And that's the experience we have in the morning when we're well-rested and we're healthy. It's a movement, it's experience we have in the spring when we're you know, looking at getting back into the garden or doing spring cleaning in the garage. And it's the experience that we have in the youth of our lives where we are, you know, backpacking through Europe and we're doing all these things. So there's dopamine, there's adrenaline and cortisol, which are kind of the hallmarks of summer and midday, because that is what optimizes our performance and optimizes our success during that time. And then there is the pivot, the movement from those two expansive seasons of spring and summer into a contraction phase, which includes fall and winter or evening and night. And the neurotransmitters and hormones that go with that are serotonin. And serotonin, of course, is associated with connection, um, belonging, a sense of um, community, a sense of generosity, a sense of leadership, a sense of contribution, because that's what we do at Thanksgiving, right? There's all of those things encapsulated in the experience of Thanksgiving. And then, fascinating to me, serotonin is biochemically transformed to melatonin. So, what we have is two linkages of dopamine being converted into noradrenaline and adrenaline. So there's a biochemical continuity there between spring and summer. There's also a biochemical continuity between fall and winter of serotonin into melatonin. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why the early light exposure that causes the synthesis of serotonin during the daytime allows more melatonin to be available to have a nice pulse when we when the sun goes down, we're ready to sleep. So there's this fascinating fractal pattern of biochemical conversions that exactly mirrors the emotional and psychological experience, which exactly mirrors the figurative experiences over the course of a lifetime. So I just think that stuff's super duper interesting. Long-winded way of saying, I don't think that expansion and stress, which is really what summer is about, is something that will allow you to have the optimal human experience over decades and over the course of an entire lifetime, even if you are optimally matching up all of the factors and perhaps some sort of micro strategies in a biohacking sense, because you're still trying to wring out the sponge to its maximum in that summer kind of mindset and missing 
the next natural phase. And I think that when we start to bend what our physiology and our psychology expects, we start to run into trouble, even if we're doing it in a pretty coordinated fashion. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I guess it ties in a lot to the whole concept of what is aging and the implications there. Because if aging is damage accruing, there would be this, you know, need for repairing that. Or if it's something more about the work of David Sinclair and this like loss of information, could in a way that be perpetually, you know, if we could figure out how to restore that information, would that mean that we could live, you know, forever. I'm just dying to know if you were given the opportunity to live forever, would you take that? Oh, that's such a fun question. I don't think that I would. And this is, I think maybe I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here, but I think this is actually evidence of how deeply I personally believe in this sort of phasic approach to living because the things that I find the moments in my life when I have felt the most on track and gratified and peaceful and connected and deeply awestruck by the wonderment of life have all been the times when I have been in alignment with where I am in my life. And I've not sought to, you know, hearken back to the past and to kind of keep it the way it used to be. And I've not looked to the future and tried to make it different, but I've just been here and now, and I've been present to what's actually happening in my life. And so therefore my sort of psychological state matches what's actually going on. And I am here and only here. And that to me is the richest form of living. And part of that from my perspective means that there is change over time. So that as my external environment and as my own internal sort of physiological and psychological environment changes, my ability to stay present to the things that change and to change with those things means that I can have a higher percentage of my life spent in that completely connected, peaceful, joyous, awestruck space. And living forever, depending on how you would kind of define that or what that would look like from a sort of physiological standpoint, but living forever would probably mean that there was a mismatch between what was going on with my sort of psychosocial or emotional headspace and what was happening in the world around me. I also, honestly, (laughs) I don't see the world getting a lot better and I'm not sure I want to be around in a thousand or a million years to see what happens. So no, I don't think even from that standpoint, I don't think I would choose to live forever. So fascinating. Now I'm just thinking that in the paradigm that you're presenting with this, this need for oscillation and, you know, like the paradigm of rest and recovery and expansion and contraction, if we weren't born, if we were just in a perpetual state of expansion and contraction, then perhaps there wouldn't be a need for death in your paradigm because it would just be a constant state of expansion and contraction. You could live forever. But because we're born, because there was a beginning, in a way to close that narrative, you must have death. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really good point and, and certainly in alignment with, with the way I think about it. And it allows an, an opening that that point creates an opening, an opportunity to reframe what death really is. And, you know, the winter of our lives, which are the kind of the years, the, the, the latest years of our lives. We often kind of think about those as sad and morbid, and we have such an avoidance of looking at mortality. 
And, you know, in the same way that civilization is obsessed with youth and success and productivity, we're really saying all we care about are the spring and summer aspects, the expansive aspects. And as soon as we start thinking about aging and contracting and slowing down, we start to get nervous because ultimately the end of that trajectory is our own death. And we're so uncomfortable with our own mortality, whether that is because we have a, you know, a religiously steeped background where something terrible happens when we die, or at least the risk of something terrible happens when we die, or the kind of the more kind of pragmatic and biological belief that like the lights go out and like that's it and that's the end of your human experience. Either way, we tend not to think about or accept our own our own mortality. But there's a really beautiful opportunity, and there's a diagram in my book right towards the end of a vertically oriented, upwardly ascending spiral. And what I'm kind of expressing with that is the recognition that over the course of years and decades and phases of our life, we, we can have commonality. Each year will have some commonalities, but each year also builds on the experience and wisdom accrued from previous years and decades. And so each year will actually look a little bit different. And if we're paying attention and we're adapting to what we've learned over time, each year will actually get progressively better. We will get closer to the sense of purpose and contribution to that thing larger than ourselves, to that transcendence of self. And actually, there's an opportunity, I think, when we think about kind of coming full circle and, you know, the winter time is the time when the seeds are prompted to germinate, when we, we the seeds spend time in cold and darkness, and that is required for germination in the spring. And I think the same thing is true across the course of a human lifetime, that the germination of a beautiful future requires the participation in a dark, cold winter preceding that. And my lifetime might end at the end of my own winter, but hopefully if I have done all of the phases of my life with gusto, with presence, with throwing myself wholeheartedly into that experience and really completing all of those phases, I don't have the sense of arriving at the end of my life sad and morbid and dark and alone. What I have is I've done the thing well, and there's something brighter to look forward to in the next generation and in the future. There is a sense of legacy and contribution to the next, to the future that I don't have to be present for, but I can still feel invested in. And I think that's a, a beautiful way to reframe what's otherwise a very dark and morbid thought about our own death. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing to think about. I'm always like wondering about that question and what people think, because I, I don't know. And I don't know if it's a reflection of just where I am in my life right now. I think I would love to live forever. At least that's the way I feel right now. But the thing that scares me isn't death. It's the idea of losing something or not being able to function. So it's not, it's not the death, it's the aging process. So like the thought of, you know, losing capabilities or losing, you know, accruing damage that can't be recovered from. That's what scares me ultimately. But then I'm like, if I was living forever, I could keep, you know, powering through it and try. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I guess to me, I think about, and hopefully this doesn't come across as arguing with you, but <laughs> um, if you think about living forever, living forever in that perfectly balanced you know, kind of balancing of expansion and contraction and balancing 
you know, recovery against the sort of the, the stress cost of existing that would theoretically require perfect, and that's sort of a dangerous word, but sort of perfect behavior choices for the entirety of your life. Because if you ceased to make quote unquote perfect choices, it would thus alter and unbalance the relationship, the ratio between sort of stress and recovery and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I feel like you could, I feel like you could conceivably dramatically extend a human's lifetime at a very high quality. Forever is not to me conceivable. And also I'm not an expert like David Sinclair. So <laughs> I will defer to, I will defer to his expertise in that, in that world for sure. I would say, I guess it would require perfect living or it would require perfect repair processes, I think. Kind of like the analogy I always think of is like buying a new Mac versus buying refurbished electronics. They're always like, yeah, it's completely new, but you're like, eh, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, it's going to break. It doesn't feel quite the same. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You're just like, it's, it's going to break. It's like this idea that you know, their like newness is only a newness. And that I think it might be a bit of a facade to think that you can return to that. So, yeah. Something that you pointed out or you were speaking about, and it's something that you talk about a lot in the book is this idea of anchors. So in a way it can seem ironic because we've been doing all this talk about, you know, contraction, expansion, this idea of you know, opposites and things changing. But there's also this idea at the same time, a very grounding idea of anchors and that there is something consistent in our daily life. I actually don't think I said this yet, the whole podcast. So for listeners in the book, you might've said it, or I might've said it. I don't remember now. Dallas does have four tenets that he basically goes through is a way that's kind of organized. So there's sleep, move, eat, and connect. So he does explore all of these and then the oscillation within them, the the changes that happen, like what that looks like. But then there is at the same time, this idea that there is a sort of consistency, even with these changes. So I would love to talk a little bit about that. So like diet, for example, and maybe this is a good way to both tie in your perspective of what these look like seasonally. So like with diet, you talk about you know, a seasonal diet. I love what you say. You're like, you say that basically diet's one of the easiest ones to live by seasonally because you can just shop at a farmer's market <laughs> and it like kind of does it for you, which is really awesome. There's a couple other kind of spinoffs there too, kind of simple kind of shortcuts or, or heuristics, you know, and I know, you know, given your work on intermittent fasting, one of the other kind of comments, cause I get questions about fasting all the time and I'm like, okay, let's talk about a kind of a, a shortened feeding window. And one of the easiest ways to think about, from my perspective, to think about when you should eat is only eat when it's light out. Because in the ancient past, you're not foraging in the darkness. You're probably not hunting in the darkness and you might be eating around the, you know, the fire after dark, but it's by pretty dim light. And mostly you're eating occurs during the daylight hour. So simple heuristic eat during the daylight hours only, which means the feeding window changes dramatically over the course of the year because in the summertime, there's a very wide feeding window. In the winter, it's much narrower if you're in a temperate climate. So there's lots of little things like that that give like an anchor point, right? And, and to your point about there being anchors in the book, all of these oscillations occur around some sort of pivot, some sort of anchor point. And whether you're talk, picturing like a some celestial orbiting body around a midpoint, around a, a homeostatic point, or whether you're picturing a, a, a sine curve that has 
midpoints between the extremes or whether you're picturing a pendulum with a pivot, there's always a reference point. There's always a place to return back to. And I wrote about anchors in the book partly as a way to honor the fact that for each of the factors, food, movement, sleep, which again is kind of shorthand for the light dark pattern that we have and connection, we need reference points. So the anchors both describe the lowest common denominator, the most simple access points for making changes in each of these four areas, but they also give us sort of an order of priority. And, you know, so many times we do get off in the weeds and we get lost in the details and we really miss the forest for the trees. And so, you know, if someone came to me and had no idea about anything about physiology or research or biohacking or evolutionary history or anything, and they're like, I just need to get my life in order. What do I do? And in a handful of sentences, I would be like, eat a good source of complete protein, typically kind of animal protein at each meal during the daylight hours and do movement that includes very useful three-dimensional functional strength kind of movements um, most days and move a lot throughout the course of the day in the same way as our ancestors would have. And recognize that the more closely we align our circadian rhythms to the natural light cycle outside, the better we're off we're going to be because When you do that, you naturally get more and better sleep anyway, both as a function of spending more time in darkness and also a function of exposing yourself to natural light during the morning and midday and recognize that we as humans are deeply social creatures. And from a physical and psychological safety standpoint, which is a really huge driver of human behavior, broadly speaking, what makes us feel safe is having someone or a small collection of someone's who have our back when it matters. And there's some interesting research looking at social support that actually the perception that we have people who will socially support us is actually more influential for our health in terms of balancing stress response than actually receiving that social support. So really building the mental model of, hey, I have a tribe that has my back is a really important feature for mitigating stress because it gives us this psychological experience of being protected and being included. And if we are excluded and or unprotected, we're in a very precarious place as humans. So there's those kind of those anchors that I discuss in the book that if you just did those basic things where you invested in, you know, a handful of people who are really close to you in a very vulnerable and present and connected way, and you had a good source of protein at each meal during the daylight hours, and you did functional strength training and a a large range of movement, and you aligned your light-dark cycle with what's going on outside, and you did nothing else. I think that would sort out the vast majority of both existing chronic disease issues and also prevent most of the chronic disease to come. And so that's the the anchors is the most basic starting point. And then all of the oscillation and the fine-tuning and the synchronization that goes on after that is better but it's secondary to the most foundational anchor behaviors. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat 
when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try dry farm wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. 
On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, I think it's so profound. And actually, I mean, just looking at the anchors that you put out there, they are things that I've naturally gravitated towards. For example, with diet, regardless of different dietary approaches, I mean, like protein has always been the anchor for me. I just don't feel complete without it. And then I like fiddle beyond there. I was fascinated, of course, given my audience and my listeners will know this, your perspective on intermittent fasting and positing it or putting it forth as this idea that does change with the seasons. And so fasting, if people are engaging with that for different lengths based on the season, I was actually going to say, or I I would love to know your thoughts could intermittent fasting be an anchor in a way? I know you were using like the dark light cycle as an anchor, but could eating in a time-restricted eating pattern be like a constant approach, an anchor? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could, right? And I'll I'll distinguish between time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting because to me... All the terminologies, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the terminologies. I guess really, you know, intermittent fasting is sort of the shorthand, but really we're talking about time-restricted feeding. And when I recognize that the, you know, all the neurochemical and more importantly, in this case, metabolic processes are all downstream and regulated by what happens in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, effectively saying they're all regulated by the light-dark cycle, then it stands to reason that our eating windows, our feeding windows, because they are directly connected to the light-dark cycle, and if we're using the light-dark cycle as our anchor for all the other physiological processes, right, going back to the beginning of this conversation where I'm like, well, maybe maybe the light-dark cycle actually is the most important thing. If that's the case then the natural ebb and flow of wider or narrower feeding windows across the course of the seasons would just be a natural extension of that. It certainly could be an anchor. 
in the same way that just going to the farmer's market and eating the food that is available locally at any given time of year is a really great direct, simple connection between you and what's going on in your local environment, intermittent fasting, or in this case, time-restricted feeding that matches the natural ebb and flow of the of the light-dark cycle is another really direct connection between you and what's going on in your environment. So I'm, yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. And do you think, I feel like this is debated on and on, but, you know, people will say that, you know, historically we were eating during the day, but then there's the argument that we would be hunting during the day, so we would actually be eating at night. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I know you just talked about it, but... I do, and, and you know, what we find when we look at the... Because we don't know what happened in the truly evolutionary past, but we can make a, a an educated guess based on contemporary tribes that we can observe. And what we see is that actually hunting doesn't take up the majority of the daytime. You know, all of the tasks combined of hunting and gathering and moving camp and doing maintenance and like just like the things that are necessary for primitive living for hunter-gatherer existence really only take up three or five or six hours a day. Like it's not 14 hours a day of hunting requiring us to cram our eating into the darkness after the daytime. The hunting that does go on on average, and of course there's differences day to day, but the hunting that goes on on average wouldn't take up the the majority of the day. Therefore, there's plenty of time both to eat as we forage and also to eat after we hunt that wouldn't require us to be pushed all the way into the nighttime. So would it be conceivable that ancient hunter-gatherers ate, you know, after dark sometimes? Of course, for sure. Absolutely. I don't see a really sound logic for that being the norm on an average over the course of, you know, millions of years in all of the different locations that humans evolved in. Like, I don't see that being such a consistent pattern that it became the norm in our evolutionary experience. Hopefully that makes sense. No, completely. Gotcha. Also, I really, really identified with the movement part of the book and the the recommendations that you made there because I personally subscribe to what I call like functional movement. I try to just make my life about movement, but then I try to enhance it. So I actually wear weights like on my body. So then when I'm like grocery shopping or vacuuming, it's like, it's like a workout. I love you even said like, and this is like literally how I think you even said for coffee, you know, grind your own coffee. And I'm like, yes. I don't like the shortcuts to get things automatically done. It's like you can add all this movement and people might think, oh, grinding coffee, that's not going to burn calories. But when you look at it in a broader picture of like just staying constantly active, I think it just leads to so much more health in the body and you don't need all of this concentrated, I'm going to burn calories while, I mean, you can if that makes you happy and you enjoy going to the gym, but I don't think it's like automatically necessary. And it's so funny. My co-host Jen on the intermittent fasting podcast, we have completely opposite approaches to, well, we both do intermittent fasting, but so she likes doing like meal delivery services. So her, her meals are always delivered and you know, that's what she does. She hates going to the grocery store. I have to go to the grocery store every single day because I have to feel like I don't know. I feel like it goes back to this whole hunter gatherer thing. I need to feel like I need to go to the grocery store and I need to like physically like look through all of the, you know, what's there and I need to pick it out and I need to carry it and I need to bring it back and I need to cook it. And I just feel like, I don't know. I just, I love like what you put forward with the whole, you know, movement in our lives aspect. 
What I hear you saying is that you recognize the value of integration of different aspects of your life, whether that is sourcing and preparing food that you eat, or whether that is moving in different ways throughout the course of the day, or whether that is walking to the grocery store and, you know, carrying your food home from there. There's sort of a, an interconnectedness of different aspects of our life. So if you're, gr- you're grinding your coffee by hand, you are integrating an experience that otherwise you you would compartmentalize and mechanize. And yeah, it might be faster, it might be easier, it might be more efficient, but it's also disintegrated. And I think that what we've done with modern civilization is we have mechanized and disintegrated so much of our lives that what we lack is the experience of being in our lives, where we are the sort of action arm of what happens to us and with us. And instead, we we are consumers of pre-ground coffee or meal services or whatever. And I think to me, if efficiency and convenience and success are the most important principles, then mechanizing everything through industrialization is the great way to do it. And that's what we've largely done in the modern world. However, there's the tremendous loss of the experience of living. And I'll use the example of growing a garden, right? For your listeners that have had any version of growing their own garden, even if it was like a window pot of some fresh basil, there's a, a ineffable experience of picking something that you have watered and fertilized and grown and connected with in a way that is not the same as going to the grocery store or not the same as having a you know meal service delivered. And that connectedness in the sense of belonging and knowing where, in this case, where your food came from and your participation in that, it's a It's a deeply satisfying experience that the more we compartmentalize and make more efficient all of these other ways of living, we lose that ineffable satisfaction. And so much of what I'm trying to do with the way I live is to reintegrate and reclaim those things that I have previously taken advantage of efficiencies and conveniences and and actually now saying, let me take some of those back and bring those back into my life. And having a garden is a great example. When I built my house a couple of years ago, I made sure to have some garden space because it is such an enriching experience for me. And it's not perhaps an obvious example, but you could take that concept into all areas of your life and make your life a lot less efficient and also a lot richer. Exactly. I mean, this is one of the things I struggle with so much. And I think especially in our modern society, that it's so common is, you know, this need to always be productive or like you said, you know, making things efficient. And we feel like that's what's necessary in order to, you know, keep up with the Joneses and do all the things. And I'm always torn between wanting to feel completely productive in every single moment and have every moment. It's like I have to earn my time or something. It's like I have to earn... (laughs) my life by making everything quote productive compared to, you know, what is actually providing meaning. And you're speaking to, you know, this need for connection and you do have, you know, this whole section on, you know, just how alienating social media is today. And I mean, it's shocking because on the one hand, we're seemingly engaging with so many people all the time, Yet I feel like we're lonelier than ever and we're more disconnected than ever, even though we're seemingly more connected than ever. And I feel like that's, I mean, something that we all need to, you know, address. And you go into details about the implications of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, social media is a, a great, very modern, right? Because it's, re, you know, recent in the last decade or so, a little over a decade. It is a great, extremely current example of the way that we as a civilization behave in perpetually expansive summer ways, summer modes, because social media. So I'll, the way I just, the way I talk about connection in the book is summer in on one extreme as the maximal expansion of a large number of relatively shallow, relatively superficial relationships where we meet new people. We keep, we, you know, we keep in contact with lots of different people, but none of those relationships are particularly deep and vulnerable. So there's sort of an inverse relationship between the number of relationships and the kind of depth and vulnerability and feeling of real belonging and connectedness. So then the opposite extreme there, which occurs in the wintertime, would be a radically contracted number of people that we are deeply connected to. But the key there is that we are deeply connected. And those are our, you know, our romantic partners, our closest family, our closest friends, kind of our chosen family, so to speak, where we are very vulnerable and authentic. You know, you think about our hunter-gatherer past, when we lived in small tribes in close quarters, we had virtually no privacy, which was good and bad, depending on how you looked at it. But we also had virtually no loneliness. We had no social isolation. And so there's a trade-off there. And in this summer way of being or on social media, we can have as much privacy as we want because we totally get to filter what we share and tell whatever public story we want, which can be very authentic or more commonly not very authentic, which leaves us feeling disconnected and isolated. And so we've put forward this happy face, this great story, this highlight reel, which is not representative of what is going on for us, you know, kind of internally. So social media then is the hallmark summer connective experience. It's not wrong. It's not inherently by definition problematic. It's expansive. It's, you know, connecting with far more people than we historically would ever have been able to know and connect with in a sort of a tribal hunter-gatherer way. Because of most of the research on that, and this is drawing on Robin Dunbar's research, is that most kind of tribal groups are limited to somewhere between 50 and 150 people. There's no such thing as having a thousand friends, you know, or 2000 Facebook or whatever. We can't have meaningful human connections with that many people. So there is a, a necessary inverse relationship between number and kind of depth and connection. So social media then is perfectly appropriate in both the literal summer of our lives, because it symbolizes a large expansive behavior where we are meeting new people and being exposed to new ideas and kind of looking outward in a really big way, but it becomes not appropriate and no longer healthy and sustaining and restorative when we take that summer behavior and extend it both beyond both the literal summer and also the summer of our lives. So I think it is pretty normal to spend time in social media, to have lots of contacts and followers and friends and all this kind of stuff episodically, but the key there is it's episodic. It's only for one of the four seasons. Um, again, both literal seasons and seasons of our life. And even if we shrink that timeline down to be a 24 hour timeline, what it means is that we are only biologically, physiologically, and socially normal to be looking outward to a world where there are tons of people that we have relatively superficial interactions with during the middle of the day, during the summer of the day, so to speak. 
And that's one of the reasons why I argue quite strongly um, in the book and elsewhere that it's important for us when we come home at the end of the day, end of the workday, end of the school day, whatever, to really deliberately put away the social media because what we're doing is we are honoring the shift into a more present, connected, grounded, vulnerable, fall and winter type mode, which requires we don't put our attention on a thousand Facebook friends. We put our attention on the people who are in physical proximity to us, who we have the opportunity to be deeply authentic and vulnerable with. So there is that same expansion contraction cycle, even across the course of a day. You answered one of my questions I was literally going to ask was because I had read before that actually looking at faces at night could actually interfere with circadian rhythm. I had assumed that was due to, because we're socially, you know, interacting with people during the day. And then, but then earlier when you were talking about, you know, the role of darkness and how we're not in darkness anymore, I was thinking maybe that plays a role because literally at night, even if you're with other people, you wouldn't see them. I think part of the answer, part of the explanation there is that there is a dopamine response to eye contact, to face-to-face to, to -face, um, experience with people. And because we are, dopamine, of course, is, is highly involved in attention and focus. And when we are looking at someone, like humans are incredibly exquisitely tuned to facial expressions, to reading information from the widening of the eyes or a squint or a twitch of the mouth to kind of these, some of these incredibly nuanced small things. And um, so we have a dopamine response to that face-to-face -face experience. And if we're looking at faces or we're having face-to-face -face experiences under bright light into the evening hours, we're having a dopamine response and dopamine is not a thing that's good for sleep, right? So if we're taking a, in, in exactly the same way as Blue light is effectively sending our brains the message that it is blue sky, midday, you should be alert. We're giving ourselves a mismatched signal if we're looking at faces, either real faces, you know, under bright light or faces on social media or whatever. We're giving ourselves a, a mismatched signal in the post sunset hours. It's so fascinating. And it's like on the one hand, we could have the ultimate solution to all of this if we could somehow just... Because you, you talk about the, I don't know how to say the word, Zeit? Zeitgeber. I learned a word when I read this. <laughs> so how do you say it? And I should know this because I'm German. Oh, you are German. Okay, so that's a German word. Yeah, uh, Zeitgeber. Zeitgeber. So Zeitgeber is a, a German word meaning time giver or, or time keeper. So it's basically a, a physiological anchor for the circadian rhythm. Yeah. So you, you talk about that. And actually I read that and I learned what that was. And now, cause I'm always reading like scientific studies and now I'm seeing that word like everywhere. And I'm like, I'm sure I was seeing it before, but you know, just didn't really realize what it was. There are all these factors that are, you know, telling our bodies different things and our bodies are interpreting them and it's affecting our health and everything. It's just on the one hand, it's like, if we could just tell our body that it's okay and it doesn't have to respond to any of these things a certain way, which makes me wonder like something like meditation or if one could enter a state of reprogramming their body to respond differently to these things, like, could that be, I mean, I don't even know if that's possible, but could that be like a solution compared to that's probably very, very hard for most people to achieve. So the flip side is, you know, doing this approach like you outlined in the book where you are, you know, consciously 
working with your environment, working with your movement, working with your diet to support the natural system. I don't know if it's possible to like reprogram. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, right? And I think kind of my smart-ass response is like, well, if you had the infinite lifetime that we were talking about, you probably would have enough time to reprogram all of those things. My more pragmatic approach is like change your environment before your environment changes you. Because undoubtedly, our environment changes us in so many ways, both perceptible and imperceptible. To your point about, for example, meditation, there's profound opportunities to learn how to respond differently to environmental stimuli, right? To give a different meaning to a stimulus such that we don't have to feel threatened by a particular thing that we may be used to because we gave it a particular meaning. That being said, not everything is directly mediated by the conscious perception, right? So for example, it might be difficult to, or perhaps impossible to, through, you know, mindset work or meditation or, or sort of the mind-based reprogramming override the physiological response to light as mediated through the retina and the suprachiasmatic nucleus, because that's just a neurological response, right? And that's such an ancient evolutionary response that single celled organisms had it. So, you know, given how recent human consciousness is in, in the evolutionary history, I think what we probably have the most, and I'm kind of coming to this just as I'm speaking, but I think what we probably have the most opportunity to mediate through meditation and being present and being really mindful are the things that are, that have changed in our world and in our experience of being human since we developed consciousness, since we became human in that way. Because the things that developed pre-consciousness before we were the humans as we kind of largely think about them now may not actually be accessible via altering our consciousness or via kind of reprogramming to use your word because they predate the development of consciousness and i think that's probably consistent with the idea that we can significantly massively alter our perception and the meaning that we give certain events from a sort of both conscious and subconscious psychological perspective. So yeah, can we, can we change the meaning that we give environmental stimuli? Yeah, to a really large degree, but for things that don't have inherent meaning and aren't necessarily interpretable as something other than the stimulus, the stimulus that they are, I think it might be harder to, to change via something like meditation. Yeah. You literally just walked down the path I was looking towards, which was, I guess it does come back to, this idea of what is consciousness and what is our sense of self, because I am fascinated beyond belief on the studies on like split brain patients and realizing that, you know, parts of our brain and our sense of identity and who we are, our brain can create, because basically for listeners, and I've talked about this a lot before, but basically, you know, different parts of our brains are responsible for like our left brain is more about like stories and language and our right brain is more, you know, our animalistic behaviors, movement, things like that. And when those parts of the brain aren't connected, they realize in studies that there are different like concepts of self and like the, our left brain, the story part of our brain can literally create stories about things that happen that didn't even happen. It's shocking. It's just made me realize I literally know nothing. What I think I'm experiencing, I have no idea. Like it, I have no <laughs> right. idea. <laughs> 
I'm not a memory expert, but the science of memory fascinates me. And, you know, broadly speaking, you know, human memory is not data retrieval the way an external hard drive of an, on a computer would be. Human memory is a conjuring of an emotional experience and then a retrospective re-engineering of the narrative to match the emotive experience. And every time that we access that quote-unquote memory, that experience, we tell a slightly different story. And so fascinatingly, the memory research seems to suggest that the more, the, our most vivid memories are probably the least accurate because we've accessed them and rewritten them and iterated them so many times to add detail that may or may not have ever existed in the original experience, but they're made vivid by the repetitive accessing and the augmentation of that experience, but all done retrospectively, all done in an iterative process. So I think that stuff is fascinating, but it highlights the opportunity for us to tell a different story and to give a different meaning to an experience. And this is something that psychotherapists and trauma researchers have known for a long time is that we have the opportunity to tell a different story and thus to make a totally different narrative out of our lives if we don't rely on the memory that we think happened to us and instead we open up the door to tell a totally different story. Exactly. I mean, it's simultaneously terrifying <laughs> to think that, you know, what we're experiencing might not even be quote reality, but at the same time, it's so freeing because it means that we could at the same time almost experience any reality. And then tying it back into what we were talking about though, like, you know, could you reprogram, have meditation, you know, do all of that versus, you know, making all these lifestyle changes and affecting those environmental and external factors. I feel like it can, it can all come together in a way because you can consciously choose to, you know, follow all these practices and things that you outline in the book to encourage an environment that is in line with the, the biological, the environmental factors, the things that support our quote natural way of being. At the same time, you can still know that you can be okay with any experience and yet that you can have any experience. And I loved what you were talking about earlier about, you know, there's this, this feeling of that I am enough, you know, that we are enough. And I, that's just something I've really personally been really been thinking a lot about and been trying to encourage is this idea that I am enough. So at any given moment, everything is okay. And I can, you know, do all these things like you talk about in the book to just, you know, optimize and be in line with my natural self and at the same time be okay with it all. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the, the, the concept of enough is a beautiful idea, that sense of sort of adequacy, the sense of, uh, I guess, ultimately uh, abundance. And if you, and I kind of layer this and I don't get really deep into this in the book, but I do mention it. If you think about the expansion mode, the dopamine and adrenaline and cortisol driven expansion and the seeking, the chasing, the success, the efficiency, the accumulation of resources, like all of that is driven by the desire for more. And the flip side, the equal and opposite contractive mode of fall and winter, that is serotonin and melatonin driven, is the sense of adequacy, is the sense of enoughness. And along with that recognition of enoughness is the, is the experience of gratitude. And so one of the things that I deeply value in my personal life is the recognition, and this is, requires presence. And so this is kind of a Actually, I'll, I'll test this idea here. There's a, there's a potential book idea embedded. But this 
pivot out of chronic summer and into a restorative fall and deeply kind of therapeutic winter experience is a pivot out of the chasing more and a pivot into being present, recognizing the adequacy and abundance of what is in the present, this exact moment, not next month, next year, or even tomorrow, but like this exact moment, you and I are having a conversation and I'm in a warm house with a roof over my head and I'm well-fed and there's a perfect, complete, abundance experience there. And when I take the time through mindfulness and potentially kind of meditative practices, and I really experience that presence, what spontaneously arises for me is this incredible sense of gratitude. And that sense of gratitude immediately and spontaneously turns itself outward into a into a desire to express generosity. And so fall as a mode of being, fall is a mode of presence, gratitude, and generosity, which lines up with what we do intuitively in the fall anyway, which is gather together, celebrate the harvest, and give thanks for it. I think that's such a beautiful idea because we've been doing this forever. We have harvest celebrations in every civilization that we know anything about at all, because that is the natural thing that happens when we have enough. And it is the distortion of civilization that convinces us that we need more. We need more financial resources. We need more performance. We need more, you know, optimized health metrics. We need more friends. We need more of whatever. And that is an expansive spring and summer kind of mode. And one of the reasons why we get so out of balance and why so many of us are hungering and feeling the deep deficiency of that enoughness is because we've got stuck in that chronic summer mode. And the opportunity here is to consciously, deliberately make the pivot to getting present, often facilitated through mindfulness and meditation. And when we get really present, abundance, gratitude, and generosity spontaneously arise. And I think that's a beautiful idea. Yes, exactly. I, I've been thinking more and more about how is there this idea that at the foundation of every human being that it is, you know, love and gratitude and it's just fears and anxieties and things that cloud it because I think people think oftentimes that they need to get things to be grateful for. They need to find people to love. They need to have these things in order to feel gratitude or love when maybe there already is gratitude and love. It's just our fears and anxieties and stress that clouds it. And I know for me, and this is something that you talked about as well, is that there have been moments where I've had a moment where my fears and anxieties are gone, you know, if it's like a moment of meditation or it's just this moment where that is gone for a moment. And I realize that below all of it, that there is just this foundation of gratitude and love. And what's so interesting is when that happens, at least it's when it's been happening recently, is I actually, my initial response is this overwhelming sadness because I'm like, wow, like this is there all along. It's like, it's like Dorothy at the end of The Wizard of Oz. And it's like, wow, this was there all along and I could have been experiencing it. When you experience it, you're like, you want it to stay. I mean, I guess that's just what makes us complex human beings. I disagree with one little fraction of what you said there. And otherwise, I'm totally on board and I love it. I don't know, actually, if the experience of being in that present, grateful, generous space is something that we conceptually could experience in perpetuity in our lives. Because I think part of the experience of gratitude, 
requires the recognition of something new, requires the like, oh, I didn't see this before. And so there's a transition from not seeing to seeing, a a transition from not being present to being present, a transition of not being grateful to being grateful. And I think that contrast is required to really experience the deepest parts of that in the same way that it is required of us to go through the spring and summer phases of our lives and experiences to fully, again, experience and appreciate the later and different seasons and phases where, of course, fall would be so deeply grateful and connected and generous. But I think that that does require the loss of perspective and the loss of connection to self and others and the loss of honoring of the way we would live in our deepest alignment in the summer of our lives. So there is this almost hero's journey overlay here where it requires us to, and it is normalizing getting lost and out of sync and going astray, so to speak. I, I think that is part of the human experience. And so then the return home the recognition of the beauty and love and gratitude and abundance that was always there, it requires us to forget. And I think it's normal for us to forget and it's normal for us to go astray and get lost. And it's just as normal and equally beautiful for us to recognize that we've taken a path that doesn't always lead us to peace and harmony and beauty and presence. Because then when we go back to that place. What we have is this overwhelming sense of wonder and awe and gratitude and connection that we wouldn't even have any reference point of something different if we hadn't gone astray and gotten lost, so to speak. So I don't know, I I overlay the hero's journey onto this entire human experience because if we didn't leave home, so to speak, in a sort of differentiation sense as, as, children as youth as you know as adolescents and young adults and we didn't get lost so to speak by venturing way out into the world kind of getting in over our heads making some choices that ultimately end up being painful choices and then finding our way back what we would be left with is an incredibly contracted small limited existence and the expansion contraction cycle this largest overlay in the book is about going out and yes, expanding, meeting new people, doing new things, working hard, chasing success and productivity and optimizing and health and metrics and all that, doing all of that. And then pivoting away from that and saying, actually, my life is made richer, recognizing that I have done those things. And now it's time to do something different. And I think that completion of each of those phases is ultimately what adds up to the completion, so to speak, of a life well-lived that allows us to arrive at the end. What's the Hunter S. Thompson quote of, you know, skidding in broadside, all banged up and, you know, and and, and saying, man, what a ride. And I think that's the experience that I want to have at the end of my life, at the winter of my life, rather than a series of regrets of roads not taken. No, I'm actually, I am so glad you said all of that because actually that leads to pretty much like the major epiphany that I had at the end of your book that I was dying to tell you because it was a really actually a radical mindset shift for me. I was talking with my therapist. I was like, I had this huge epiphany. It was basically that 
It's literally what you just said. This idea that we oscillate between things. So I think like for me, and I think for a lot of people, if you feel like you're drained out by this endless summer, you can feel like you need this fall pivot, this winter restoration. And in a way, prior to reading your book, it was like, that was the end all. It was like, I need to restore and heal. And then I'll be back to endless summer forever. And I won't let this happen again. And that was like kind of daunting to me because it was like, okay, I'll heal. I'll, I'll be able to deal with everything. I'll deal with social media, all the health, like everything. It'll be great. And then I'll just be like sustainable when really, no, there, what is so reassuring is that there is always seasons. And thinking about that, I was like, okay, like I always can have these summers And I can always have these falls and winters. Like I don't have to like heal permanently, recover permanently, and then be good to go and never need to rest again. Like there's always a cycle. (laughs) Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is, is once you are in alignment, you can then oscillate very naturally, right? It's again, it's kind of that upward ascending spiral kind of idea. It's a little bit too kind of nerdy and technical, but but one of the phrases that works the best for me to think about how to coordinate and kind of put all these oscillating pieces together is to synchronize them in their season where you are in the literal year, where you are in the course of your kind of the season of your life to synchronize those things and then periodize them, meaning let them move in synchrony, periodize them, let them oscillate together. So it's synchronize then periodize. And that's actually the order of priority as well is match up these different behaviors in your current life, in the space where you are, get into alignment with where you actually are in your life. And then all you have to do is press like press the the play button again and let everything move in concert. And in the book, I've got a couple of illustrations that are hand-drawn and, and, and rudimentary, but they're of concentric circles. And I originally presented this material at the Ancestral Health Symposium, and I had actually a poster of concentric circles that basically had a clock hand that was tied to each of the concentric circles. So there's four factors there would be four clock hands. And what you're basically doing is each of the cardinal points or 12, three, six, and nine on the clock would represent one season. And you point all of the clock hands at the behaviors that match that season. And then they all move in synchrony across the course of one full cycle, whether that is a year or a a lifetime. So yeah, when you get into alignment, which is really matching up where you are in your actual lifetime, in your actual environment, whether you're talking about something specific, like what time of day it is or what you know month of the year it is, or you're saying, where am I in the progression of the seasons of my life? When you get into alignment and you've sort of recalibrated, so to speak, then it's actually really easy because you just let things progress incrementally, naturally in concert. And it's not a perpetual battle to heal and shift and massively overhaul everything, you're just letting the system do what it intuitively wants to do at that point, once you're kind of back in coordination or back in alignment. So does recalibrating or resynchronizing all of our currently mismatched behaviors require a lot of work to get it back on track? Yes. What I'm describing in the book is a pretty significant shift from what the way most of us live. And Once it's back in alignment to whatever degree you intuitively, intrinsically feel you need, it's easy. It's so easy because all you're doing is letting 
all of the parts of you, your physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual parts all just move together in the way that is easy, is intuitive, is natural, is biological. And in the same way that, you know, if you start seasonal eating and you start tuning into some of your intuitions about what you crave or desire or or feel like eating at any given time of the year, it becomes really easy because I don't want to eat a bunch of strawberries in January because it doesn't make sense for me in where, you know, I live in Salt Lake City. There aren't strawberries growing outside in January, but it's really easy to do that natural intuitive oscillation because I just learned to trust the wisdom and the intuition that is in me already. And that is in all of us. So one of the things I say frequently about this book is that, you know, some people have said, oh, this is a, you know, it's a genius new plan. Even, you know, the subtitle we wrote, it's a groundbreaking new plan. This is not a groundbreaking new plan. This is an old plan. It's so old. It's encoded into every single one of our genetic expectations for what the world around us is supposed to be. So this is, it's elegant, but it's not elegant because I invented it. It's elegant because it's how we have always been intended to work. Yeah, I think, well, like you just said, that's what makes your book so radically different from so many other books is because so many other books provide this plan and it's like, do this plan, you know, whether it is quote natural or more, you know, artificial, but do this plan, then you're better, then you're good to go. And it's like the end. But for your book, it's not that at all. It's there actually is, if listeners are wondering, because I know we've been very esoteric in our conversation, there actually is in the book, like, a plan um, <laughs> that can be that can be <laughs> yeah we kind of skipped over I, that part you know, well we'll have to get the book for that but there actually is you know a, an implementable timeline type plan that can be implemented but if the book had ended with that I mean it still would have been incredible because of the paradigm shift but if it had just ended with that I think people might have been left with feeling the need to do this plan and then they'll be good to go but no there's this super super important follow up which is you know regardless of where you're coming from, you can do this healing restorative phase. And then beyond that, there will always be these oscillations. There will always be times of expansion. There will still be rest and recovery. So you don't feel like you have to be this perfect, like I did the plan, I'm fixed, and now I got to be perfect forever. Instead, there's always things to look forward to on both the forward movement and the rest and recovery. And that's what I found just so encouraging and so wonderful. That's really nice to hear. Thank you for that. I found it very, very, very implementable for me. So I know we've talked about a lot. (laughs) Perhaps this is time. There's still so much more, like I could talk for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. The last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast, you will probably appreciate. It's just because I've realized how incredibly important mindset is about everything and perspective and gratitude. So the last question I always ask is what is something that you're grateful for? Well, in the context of, you know, talking about a a book that I've got coming out, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to take a lifetime of what I used to think of as mistakes. And now I kind of think of as simple experiences and to take, you know, a, a lifetime of growing up in a you know, a log cabin and having a chronic inflammation in my shoulder and stumbling on to research on autoimmunity and dietary lectins and like to kind of stick all of that stuff into this, this soup and to be able to synthesize something that has been so 
deeply healing and enriching for my life. And I really hope that that is the experience that readers have as well. So I'm so grateful to be able to to offer that to the world because in a different lifetime, in a different era, in, in a different body, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I'm grateful for all of the painful choices I have made because they have allowed me to contrast that pain and, and to kind of alchemize that into what I think are really powerful ideas. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share that with your audience. No, thank you. Thank you so much for your work. I mean, groundbreaking, like we said, is in the subtitle, but your work, I mean, Whole30 has had, the effect it's had on the population is obviously undeniable. And now this new book, I think just takes it to the next step by having the whole encompassing picture. So I'm really, I'm so grateful for all that you're doing. I think it's changing the world. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on this podcast. And I look forward to all of your future work and hopefully talking again in the future. Melanie, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Dallas. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.